This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. I'm Bella Romero. And I'm Christina Cano, and you're listening to Look West. In this episode, we're diving into the disparities in voter turnout in California, which is indicative of a greater issue in civic engagement and representation in policy. The future of California is being decided by older, less diverse voters when our population is so much more diverse than this. According to the Economic Policy Institute, as the population ages, the older population will remain predominantly non-Hispanic white, while the younger population will increasingly be people of color. We need to be engaging these younger, more diverse groups in civic engagement opportunities when they're young. But first, we should talk about what is civic engagement. There are a lot of definitions out there, but I chose to use the American Psychological Association, which defines civic engagement as individuals and collective actions designed to identify and address issues of public concern. Our guests shared their unique perspective on civic engagement with us. It's to think very intentionally about what we are doing in our daily lives to help support each other. Participation is our responsibility. Sitting by the sidelines is not acceptable to me. As I tell my children, don't complain if you don't vote. At the California Civic Engagement Project, we define it pretty broadly. So it's any action taken by a group or individual uh, to bring about a change in their community, a positive change in their community. To be involved. Mm -hmm. So if you become involved in your community and you decide that I want to make a difference, you can transform your community. And our society is about people who step up. I think for me, Youth civic engagement is challenging the status quo. So 2020 is a pretty big year for civic engagement because we have a presidential election year and there's a census. What everyone is buzzing about right now is the election because the primary is right around the corner here in California. In 2017, then Governor Brown signed legislation that changed the primary election date for 2020 from June to March, joining 14 other states for Super Tuesday, making California's primary earlier and therefore more impactful on the conversation surrounding voter turnout and the selection of presidential nominees. And even before 2017, the legislature passed a few different laws to make registering and turning out to vote that much easier. In 2015, new motor voter made registration automatic. When eligible voters apply for a driver's license, they're automatically registered to vote with the Secretary of State's office. Then we have the Voters' Choice Act signed in 2016, which allows counties to conduct elections under a new model, which provides flexibility and convenience for voters by choosing how, when, and where they vote. This includes mailing every voter a ballot, expanding in-person early voting, and allow voters to cast a ballot at any vote center within their county versus the previous neighborhood polling station designated by your address. But in all that we've done with legislation, there's still outreach that needs to be done to reach our two largest voting blocks in California, Latinx and youth, 18 to 24. This is why we went to an expert in the field of elections research, Dr. Mindy Romero of the California Civic Engagement Project, Her data has explored the patterns in both presidential and midterm elections by race and age, finding that although youth and Latinx voters should make up the largest portions of the electorate, they don't turn out to vote. Every election, no matter what type, high-low, turnout, primary, general, Latinos in California and in the U.S. turn out at lower rates than whites um, and the general electorate. That's always the case. So Latinos are 30% about in 2020 of the eligible voter population in California. 
And right now, my center is projecting that there'll be about 21%, 21.5% of primary voters. 21.5% um, is the largest percentage that we've ever seen in a primary for Latinos since we've been recording data. So that's exciting. That means the Latinos will have a greater voice. But there's still a big gap between 215 and 30%, so still very underrepresented. So Latinos are a large part of the political story in California. They do have power. Candidates from across um, races, including presidential candidates, need to be paying attention to the Latino vote this primary and in the general. But um, if disparities were eliminated in turnout, if Latinos voted at the same rates and were given that support to be able to do that, then Latinos would be much more, would be much more impactful, uh, have much greater, not only um, reach electorally, but um, arguably, um, at least to some degree, would have uh, better outcomes in, in the policy area as well. In the presidential primary in 2016, uh, young people age 18 to 24, their turnout was about 17%, really low. But if you look at that and break that out further, uh, white youth, youth from higher income backgrounds, um, college-going youth are more represented, right, or overrepresented. So it's the youth of color, the youth that are not going to college, that are even more underrepresented. What was powerful to hear from Dr. Romero is that she challenges the story that Latinx communities don't care. It's more about a distrust in the political system. So I think the first thing to to really emphasize is that lower turnout rates that we see historically now for Latinos are not a product of some inherent deficiency or um, apathetic position that Latinos have. It's just the opposite. Um, Latinos care deeply about their community, uh, about their families, are very active in that broader uh, definition of civic engagement. Um, but when it comes to political and electoral engagement, there are many, many barriers to their participation, to their entry into that. And to understand the barriers, I think you have to kind of break it down that we need to make it easier for the Latino community or many members of the Latino community to, um, to actually access voting. And then we need to help the community to want to vote. And again, that's not apathy like they don't care, but it's to help break down so many barriers that are, are present in, gosh, you know, for instance, do I go out and participate when I need to go home and feed my kids and I'm not even sure if this is really going to matter? Why should I participate? Well, yes, I care about my community, but it seems like there's many other things I can do hands-on in my community to help my community, and I don't know why voting is an actionable step on something I care about. And as a matter of fact, voting might even feel like I'm participating in a system that's just going to continue to marginalize me and my family if I don't see representation, for instance, on my, and I haven't seen representation on my city council and I haven't seen my city council member. While the Latinx vote is an outreach and representation issue, the youth vote is pushing back with policy. That's right. There are currently 18 states in the U.S. that currently have laws allowing 17-year-olds to vote in the primary election. What Assemblymember Evan Lowe is challenging is why not just let 17-year-olds vote, period. The question is to lower the voting age from 18 to 17, and it's my strong belief as a millennial and as someone who has participated in civic engagement at a relatively young age to help expand the pool of opportunity for individuals. And when you're at 18, you're in a state of transition, either going off to work or going to school somewhere else, and so you're really not taught um, what it means to vote. 
and what it, does it mean to be a productive member of society. I think our educational system focuses so much on the skill sets and the hard skill sets, but we forget about some of the other contributions that need to be made. In other words, the definition of success in our educational system is simply that of the knowledge base of technical skill sets. But we are more than that. And we've lost that way of saying, well, how do we help support? What does it mean to be an active citizen? What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a Californian? And so we must think intentionally about expanding access. So why not have individuals when they are captured in the classroom in the high school and their last and final year to be able to say, here is a ballot. And by the way, you can now vote and these issues will impact you. And so what should you say? Imagine then seeing political candidates coming to high school campuses to talk to younger voters who are now eligible and to hear about the challenges that they face. Assemblymember Lowe has taken an active role in working with youth in his district and across the state in advocating for more voting rights for youth. The issue resonates closely with the youth delegates from the California YMCA Youth and Government Program who worked with Lowe in advocating for ACA 8. Luckily, you and me got a chance to meet with a few of these delegates when they were here at the Capitol earlier this month for their annual conference. Let's hear from them and why they feel it's important that 17-year-olds get a vote. I'm Aiden Blaine. I'm from Santa Monica, California. I'm 18 years old, and while I'm in Sacramento as part of California YMCA Youth and Government, I serve as the 72nd Youth Governor of California, representing 3,500 delegates from all across the state. Hello, I'm Anusha Shojai. I'm from Eldorado Hills, California, and I'm part of the Capital Coalition here in Sacramento. I am 18, and I'm currently serving as the 72nd Chief Justice of California Youth and Government. My name is Nate Davis. I'm a senior, and my role here is as a chaplain. The chaplains essentially give invocation benediction speeches. We keep the energy as high as possible, especially, you know, five days of little sleep gets people down, but <laughs> we're here to keep everyone positive. I'm Alex Goldbeck. I'm a senior, and this is my seventh year in the program, um, but I am the Seven. chief of staff for the youth governor, so babysitter, mom, any side of title that goes there. Um, <laughs> but I also run the Future Leaders campaign, so I am the fundraiser, the youth division fundraiser that makes all the money for future delegates to get in this program who are on financial aid and scholarship. If 17-year-olds um, vote when they're in high school and they're actually in a government class, they're more civically engaged, they understand the government and why their voting matters, and they're also 51% more likely to vote in their next election if they vote in their first one. But if you are in college when you're in 18, that means if you lived in California, then you have to change your voter registration. And most people pre-register in California because that's what you do when you get your driver's license. And so it's really hard and it's like, oh, I'm all the way in like Wisconsin or something. And you're like, I'm just not gonna do it. Well, now you've lost a vote in California and in Wisconsin. So you're losing that habit. And if voters just got to do it at 17 or as low as 16, I think those are like the two ages that people kind of play around with. Um, specifically ACA 8 is 17, but then people are on high school campus. They're at home, they're in their home state, they're taking that first vote, and they realize how easy it is, and it becomes a habit. It just becomes, oh, on March 3rd or whenever the primary day is and whenever the general election is, oh, I just got to go turn to my form. And then you've already voted that once, and it's like, oh, I just have to switch my state. Like, that's so easy. But if you're not doing that from a young age and you're doing it when you're halfway across the country, you're less likely to do it. And 
people don't understand that there's it's very hard to switch your state and if you didn't make that a habit already and you make it you're not going to make it when you're far away and you don't want to do it i know a lot of my friends um specifically on march 3rd they're not going to be able to vote even though it'll be 18 during the general election mm -hmm. and what 23 other states if you're 17 on the primary date but you're going to be 18 by the general election you can vote in that primary but california you can't mm -hmm. which is a, a huge problem why aren't we leading that why aren't we leading the youth civic engagement movement when you're 17 you can join the military you can voluntarily sign up with your parents consent and the judge's order when you're 17 you can drive friends without an adult in a two or a one-ton, two-thousand-pound vehicle that has the capacity to kill others, but you still can't vote. When you're 17, your cold cognition abilities have already been developed, but you still aren't given the right to vote because mm -hmm. you're we're under this assumption, this this false narrative that once you turn 18, you're automatically reasonable, able to vote, able to make decisions. But that's just not true, and I think that as Californians, we need to take that step and show the country what the way forward is, not how we can constantly push ourselves back. So when we got to talk to them, I really saw a pattern emerge in their stories and how young they were when they became civically engaged, either participating in Model United Nations in middle school or watching their siblings participate in the youth and government program and just being inspired to follow in their siblings' footsteps. Both my parents uh, raised us, uh, us meaning my siblings and I, yeah. <laughs> to be very active and aware as to what's going on in our surroundings, in our world. Um, I remember my dad, uh, previous justice Sandra Day O'Connor created a game called iCivics where it's you know a little phone app and you can learn basically your yeah. civic liberties and such and so my dad would you know let us play that game so we could learn anything from the Bill of Rights to yeah. what to do if a police officer comes to your house. I think my story starts less political because I mean my mom's a teacher and my dad's works in human resources so there wasn't a lot of uh, political pushing happening when I was younger, but my brother, who's, he's 23, 24, goodness, yeah, graduating from Northwestern, oh. and he got into political activism through social justice act actions as he was in like sophomore, junior, senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would hear him mention it, because we were very close and we still are very close. Um, he'd talk about that and in one ear out the other, essentially, but you know, over time hearing that, yeah. I started realizing that there, um, there are things that should be, that I should be, actions that I should be taking. I don't know that my family was that political when I was younger, mm. but I definitely was the curious child in the sense that I would ask questions. So I was six years old when Prop 8 got first like put on the ballot. And I remember my parents' best friends being gay. And I was like, what do you mean? Like the government's going to tell you you can't do that. And there's definitely videos like of me at like six years old saying, no, like the government's not going to tell you to do that. And that was kind of my first entry to like political and understanding like there's an other entity that is trying to tell people how and mm -hmm. they couldn't live and how they should live. And for some reason, that is what sparked something in me. And I think that's mm -hmm. what my parents saw to kind of bring that in and find programs that open that up mm -hmm. for me. It also seems like they felt that it is their responsibility to participate in their community, whether by voting in an election or working in the community. Coming from, I guess, more of a privileged background in the sense that I would see more communities that didn't have that same access. And I was like, 
well, if they're not allowed to vote and I'm allowed to vote, why wouldn't I vote? Why wouldn't I take mm -hmm. advantage of this beautiful thing that is given to us that mm -hmm. isn't given in so many other states and other countries? Um, because I learned so much about the international community through modern United Nations and there's dictatorships, there's authoritarian governments that don't have this opportunity to have any say in their government. And we have that one opportunity mm. with a vote. So to me, it was like, why wouldn't you use that privilege? Yeah. I realized that I, I cannot step out of politics. I can't say, you know, politics isn't for me. Mixed race family, bisexual, black man growing up in America, like all these different things yeah. that prevent me from being, you know, quote unquote, not political, because not political means privileged. I do believe that everyone should be, again, aware of what's going on. You live in this, you know, nation, you live in this democracy. It's best to participate, whether that's, you know, casting one vote or just understanding how the government mm -hmm. works, um, I believe is very important. I think my favorite, like, quote on this is, democracy is not a spectator sport. Like, you can't just sit on the yeah. sidelines and expect things to change. It's true. And I think that if I think everyone should play their part. I think everyone should vote. And I think that when people are complaining about the way things are and saying, that I don't like this, I want things to change, but then they don't vote, they don't go and support movements that would actually change the way things are, it's kind of like looking for an excuse to mm -hmm. not end up doing anything. And I think that if, if everyone really took it to heart to actually play their role in society and go and vote, if we had every single person who is registered to vote in the United States or is of the age to register to vote, voting, things would be a lot different. Mm -hmm. Our country would be represented on a much more proportional level. There would be more issues brought yeah. to the table, but people don't vote a lot of the time. And really, by the end of these conversations with Assemblymember Lowe and the students, I think we were all wondering why it's taken so long for California to change its voting age policy. But I think Assemblymember Lowe puts it best. I think there is natural hesitancy to think about, wow, should we allow a high school student to exercise their right to vote and have a say in this country? And whether or not an individual at 17 has the capacity to understand, to exercise their moral right to participate in our democracy in the United States. Look, the definition of adulthood is very subjective. At 18, you can smoke. Uh, but 21, you can drink. Uh, you need to be 20 plus to rent a car. I think it's 24 years old to rent a car. Uh, so what is the definition of adulthood? It's very subjective. Can you be tried? Should you be tried as a minor or as an adult? At what age? And there's conversations all around that and around criminal justice. Well, the mind is matured enough to, on these decisions. If an individual at a young age committed a crime in the courts, in the eyes of the courts, should they be tried as an adult or as a minor? So yes, this is all subjective. You want an informed, educated electorate, yes. But how do we do that? And that's where civics education is so important. And so imagine at 17, that student saying to their parents, well, help me understand this because how is this going to impact me? How is this housing bond going to impact me? How is this policy going to have an impact on me? And by the way, I care about it because it's going to impact me directly. Whereas why should they care if they're not ever taught what a ballot is and what a proposition is? Therein lies part of this challenge of why do we get so such low voter participation? Individuals feel like they it's too complicated.
too much legalese. They don't understand. It doesn't apply to them. One vote doesn't matter. Whereas we know that this is hardly the case. So no time is better than now. So how do we get these groups to turn out? Our guests had a couple of different ideas. For the Latinx vote, we heard about representation from Dr. Romero, who spoke about the impact on outcomes and resources when marginalized voices aren't heard. There are a lot of things that discourage people from participating. In a long list, we could have another whole conversation about it. But I do think that when we don't see representation in government, it depends on what you're talking about. So if we're talking about at our local um, service agency, you know, governmental service agency, or if we're talking about like on a city council in elected positions, certainly in elected positions, we have unfortunately a long history in our state and our country, right, of, of um, having elected officials, um, even though many well-meaning um, in terms of representing their communities, um, that aren't from whole segments of a community, mm-hmm. right, um, or whole neighborhoods. Um, and whole whole neighborhoods or communities feel very marginalized um, and don't see themselves in in that public elected forum, and that can be incredibly discouraging. Um, have real impacts for outcomes and distribution of resources, but it also can signal to people, you know, um, why should I participate? Um, I'm not welcome. And Assemblymember Aguiar Curry talked about her efforts in her community of Winters, California, to increase representation in local politics and engage the community as a whole. When I was the mayor of Winters, I realized that we didn't have any Latino leaders. We had some of their hidden and they were didn't have the confidence. And I knew we needed to grow that because their voices although everyone tried to make sure their voices were heard, but it's also better if you have a Latino person actually doing this, telling the story. Uh, I'm Latino, but I also am not a Spanish speaker. And so um, although people agreed with me or liked me being in that role, um, I felt like that I, it was still missing something. So we started a Hispanic advisory committee, and it took many years, and it is now people are considering running for school board now, they are um, going to workshops. They are working with the medical, uh, uh, our winners' health care. I mean, they, it has just sprung up. And p- for me, it just fills my heart to see people that want to be involved, and their ki- children are now being involved. One young lady called me, and she says, I want to run for school board. What, what do I do? You know, so it's, 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 it will happen, but it, I think it really depends upon leadership within communities to make sure that you don't you keep everyone's included in making decisions. I mean, that's one of my my ones that I think that I've seen that's actually worked. And Jesse Salinas talked about his approach to educating and increasing turnout in young groups with the Yolo County Registrar, including his youth empowerment program and how Assemblymember Aguirre Curry is helping to secure funding to increase the efforts of the Yolo County High School Voter Education Pilot Program. The three-legged stool that I talk about is, one is the, the election experience that we're giving students that um, Assemblymember Aguirre Curry is helping us with. Uh, the other one is actually developing curriculum, so working with some leaders in the community that are really have statewide experience and local experience to see what we can do to modify and, and, and somewhat tweak the election experience, at least the curriculum experience on campus and, and through the schools. And then the third part is the Youth Empowerment Summit, which we just recently won a national award for by the um, national election officials just awarded us through the Youth Empowerment Summit. And what we do there is we allow students to, to learn not only about local government, but we allow them to sit down with local elected officials mm-hmm. and to talk over um, policy issues that they care about. 
they identified, and these are coming from students. We had over 100 students throughout the county talk to 25 local elected officials. And it's it's been just changing the community by having these dialogues take place. But the students themselves have identified safety, the environment, human rights, and education. Those are the four policy issues that they're talking to to local elected officials about. So they're not taking on soft issues. They're taking on hard issues and they're having these wonderful conversations about wanting change and wanting their voices to be heard. And we give them that experience of processing this dialogue with, with elected officials. As you can imagine, funding is the number one yeah. thing. And so we um, approached this with our AB 1036, trying to move that forward. And it got stuck in, I believe, appropriations. It got stuck. Um, but that doesn't make I mean I quit. That make, means I get angrier and understand why are we stopping this op- uh, this opportunity to move it forward. So we are going to work through the budget to get some money. So yeah, I, the, the, it did get stuck in the appropriations. So we actually removed the funding. So we kept the bill moving forward, and eventually it made it bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. By the way, made it onto the governor's desk, and he recently vetoed it. So we're start having to revisit, but it is, it's it's a funding issue because I can pilot it here and there. I can say one of the things that's exciting, my colleagues are excited about this. There was strong support for what we're doing here in Yolo County. And uh, in fact, I was uh, just saying that in terms of our next approach, in terms of maybe the budget ask, maybe expanding it a little bit more beyond Yolo County. So I can tell you the registrars of LA County, um, Orange County, San Diego County and Fresno County have all agreed to join us on any kind of trader bill language that we do because they would like to see it expanded and they'd like to test it out and pilot it as well in their counties. And those are pretty significant counties. So our hope is that this starts to grow mm-hmm. statewide, that this is the tip of the iceberg, that we can start to really grow this program. Because what if we could do that? What if we start to really change in California those data points where we're saying, those 18 to 24-year-olds, we need to engage them early on, and they need to participate at a higher rate than they are so they can have their, their voice heard in this democracy, because right now it's just not there. And Assemblymember Lowe agreed that education is the biggest tool to increase voter turnout in young people. How are we as a society setting up our young people for success, whereas the system is stacked against us? So what are we doing to change that? And that's what is critically important for us to think about. This is transformative. Individuals need to understand what they're up against. But similarly, when I talk to young people, I tell them these problems. They all recognize it. I'm not telling them anything that they don't know. But then I ask the question, who's to be held to account? Who's to be held to account for the situation that you are going into? This housing crisis, these environmental challenges, the transportation issues. And they said, well, our government. And I said, okay, well, who is your government? And they said, I don't know, our elected officials. I said, can you name any elected officials? It's complete silence. So there's a significant disconnect, which goes back to the notion of why we need to incorporate civics education. We need to incorporate and empower young people with the opportunity to voice their concerns, but help equip them with the knowledge to do so. It's not just simply enough to provide them an opportunity to vote, we must also educate them on the process. Not This is not a, a push on partisan ideology, but rather you must be equipped and understanding how the system works so that you can be a productive member of society and that you can hold your government accountable. That's what this issue is about.
The students themselves really felt that they personally had looked to outside sources like the California YMCA Youth and Government Program to increase their civics education and how difficult it was for their peers to participate when these resources weren't available to them. Yeah, I think my engagement in politics has been my upbringing as a, mm-hmm. as a person, not necessarily the product of my school environment or anything like that. Definitely youth and government, but that's outside of school. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the big things is just people, like, especially in high school, civic education is just so, it's not really taught. Like I'm in AP government class right now, but we're not voting this year. So for most of the kids in my class who aren't mm-hmm. 18 yet or 17, so why are the teachers gonna teach it? Mm-hmm. Like, they have no incentive to do that. But I've talked about this with my friends. If the voting age was lowered to 17 and in your senior year of high school, you were able to vote in every election, your government teachers and your school administration would not be able to neglect the fact that civic education is important and it's mm-hmm. essential because you're going to be voting while you are mm-hmm. in high school and while you are involved in this government class. And it would give that extra dimension to it, being able to actually get involved mm-hmm. and actually understand how the voting process works without teachers just teaching you how government is run, not actually how to get involved in it. It's hard sometimes to understand how as a teen, when you're sitting in high school, like how do I become civically engaged if you're not given access to these opportunities? If someone doesn't tell you like, oh, go to youth and government meetings. If you don't have that older sibling who's like, you need to come here. Like, it's very hard. And I would say that in a community where my the majority of people aren't really civically engaged or they'll do like the you know, the protest here or the, Mm -hmm. you know, I walked into my senator's office for five minutes, you know, I got the picture at the Women's March. That's not, like, you can't just be civically engaged once. It's a matter of long-term civic engagement and really making that a habit over time, Mm -hmm. like voting is. And what was interesting here was the difference between our career guests, elected officials, and researchers who have had decades of experience in elections and voter outreach to speak to. They felt like with civics education and policy that sets a standards for all Californians would create student ambassadors to affect their communities. And Bella, the young students we met, were more optimistic and enthusiastic about new technology. They all brought up social media at one point or another. Absolutely. When we spoke with the YMCA Youth and Government delegates, there was optimism in their ideas. A lot of it around the power of social media to engage and move their peers and how elected officials can better reach their young audiences using these new tools. I think social media has the biggest play. So for me, I started doing like weekly live streams when I was campaigning so that whoever wanted to could join and ask me whatever questions because it's difficult when you have so many people from all over California to be able to connect with all of them. I wanted to be that candidate that was truly like a friend rather than someone that you just look up to. I wanted to be that person that anyone could come to, Aiden as well. I had this whole Instagram account where I had 2,000 followers from our program, so I was able to contact and reach out to people on a regular basis and actually give them information about my platforms and give them information about what I'm doing and how I want to improve youth and government and change the political conversation in California in general. Mm -hmm. So with all of these kind of social media resources, I was able to connect to more people and just get my message out there in ways that I wouldn't have before social media. I I think for a lot of people, politics just feels inaccessible. It feels like something that you can't be a part of or have an impact in unless you Mm -hmm. are some sort of like youth governor or chief justice, like unless you have these high positions. I know a lot of my friends, we, we do marches, we do stuff like that, walkouts, but a lot of the time it feels like politicians don't care. And there's no way for politicians to really communicate with us 
if they don't have the social media or if they're mm -hmm. not constantly trying to reach out. So then these young people are like, I really want to be involved in this and I want to make a difference and I want to help the policies that I'm supporting, but there's no way for me to actually change yeah. anything because the politicians don't care about what I think. And I think that's not true because I think a lot of politicians do care, mm -hmm. but I don't think they're doing a good enough job reaching out to the young people, getting them to show, mm -hmm. showing them that they care. Absolutely critical in this has been social media. Yeah, 100%. Um, <laughs> like, let's, let's use the March for a Live example. Yeah. Um, you're looking at a, at a nationwide walkout, but started by some kids in Florida or some, some youth in Florida. How am I across the country going to know about that? How are my friends going to know about that without social media? So now it's the power of communication, mass communication, um, and the fact that we can see all these issues in a different light. Like, black communities knew that there was racism. LGBT communities knew that there were there was um, like homophobia, and these communities knew of their own problems, but now everyone knows of everything. I know that Australia is burning with the largest wildfire of all time. Like, that's something I know because of social media, and I can take action. That's why I think environmentalism has taken such a big stand, because it's like, oh, this is happening around the world. Okay, we need to deal with this. Or you look at any community, I think it's like it's a wake-up call, but it's also a, a opportunity for them to be on stage and have the mic, because, you know, these communities have not been given that power. They, however, can provide that for themselves via social media, and our utilization of that really, really effective utilization of that is what makes this such a different generation. Now we're in one of these changing times again where we know the tools and previous generations just don't. I think the missing link is we have the social media in the sense that you can find out about something from Florida and you can get it in California. I think the hard part is, is that there's no, you see the photo and you're like, okay, I'm supposed to walk out. There's no connection in that sense of you're not necessarily talking directly to the people who started it and there's never a point in time where we all come together as once. So you have the March for Our Lives in LA, you have the March for Our Lives in DC and the March for Our Lives in Florida, but you never have it all together. And I don't know how social media would like help this in the sense, but I think it would probably help in the same way of like nationwide, like we're meeting in DC and there has to be a way that there's a similar like social gathering that you see at youth and government where all 4,000 of us get together. Yeah. Where's the time that every single youth kid who is passionate about gun violence or passionate about climate change mm -hmm. gets together? Because it's yeah. impactful to have the march here and impactful to have the march there, but when is it gonna be the time we all came together? Yeah, and we all march to the White House and we're like, you're changing this. I think the next step for social media, like answering the previous one, is yeah. going from, uh, a megaphone to an action. So like like if we're using, mm -hmm. if we're saying social media is a microphone, we can't shout a wall down, Yeah. but we can shout for other people to come help us take it down. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, it's pairing that action step. Uh, and part of that's gonna be really hard because what I've noticed at least, and I think I'm noticing as a trend is as we are so like inundated with more and more horrible things, it's like swipe, swipe, swipe. And you yeah. just see all these horrible images. So it's, so these social media platforms have the ability to pair that ability to communicate with an ability to take action. Like, look at Instagram, got the sticker for register to vote. I've seen that sticker so many times. Like, <laughs> dozens and dozens of people are putting yeah. it on their story. But, you know, is that impacting voter registration in mass? Is it not? Maybe not. But it's the idea that social media producers can create action steps. And for us to realize that we do have to get off 
uh, the gram to do something. And looking at like opportunities to mobilize and put us all together, social media can create those those platforms for us to get together online. But, you know, looking at MOK March, I think part of what's powering that in particular and what's powering us now to make change is the severity of the situation Mm -hmm. in how it is viewed publicly. So MOK did have the power of TV and news, and that's the first time you see people, you know, being beat to death, being shot with fire hoses on the streets, and people are like, wow, this is crazy, um, and I need to go do something. Now we do have that same ability, but multiplied exponentially. Like, you have thousands of pictures of people being beat, thousands of pictures of wildfires. Like, And so now I think the next step is understanding that we have all of the tools as long as we're willing to use them in the most effective way, which may not be the way they're designed to. Like social media is just designed to show a profile. But if we're taking that and we're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start an organization online that's gonna get everyone together at one point, that I think is the next step. It's mm-hmm. taking that our ability to communicate on social media and turning it into action outside, yeah. like tangible. What I took away from all this, Christina, is that all of our guests can agree that it's everybody's responsibility to give back to their communities in whatever way they possibly can. You can start with voting or being counted in the census starting April 1st, then build up to consistent habitual actions like volunteering with a local community group, advocacy work on an issue you're passionate about, and there's so much more because civic engagement is different for everybody and we won't prescribe any one activity for our listeners. Just follow your interests and find a way to use it to give back to the common good. So to every Californian out there, whether you're young or old, or black, brown, or white, please get out there and vote in every election, not just presidential ones. And don't forget to be counted starting April 1st. I'm Bella Romero. And I'm Christina Cano. Thank you to our guests, Assembly members Cecilia Aguiar-Curry and Evan Lowe, Jesse Salinas, the assessor, clerk recorder, and chief elections official with the Yolo County Registrar for sharing their knowledge and passion for civic engagement. And thank you to the California YMCA Youth and Government Delegates, Aiden, Anusha, Nate, and Alex for their stories, as well as a special thank you to my mom, Dr. Mindy Romero, founder and director of the California Civic Engagement Project, for being on the show and sharing her expertise. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. Please subscribe and rate this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And when you think of California and politics, remember to look west.